I mean, how can we bring gratitude into our failures as much as to our successes is something I'm dying to try to figure out. Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what is going on right now. I'm Adrian Dobb. I'm Laura Good. And The Feminist Present comes at you from the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, and more specifically, from a pile of candy wrappers and caffeination devices that once was my home office. <laughs> the Feminist Present comes at you from the ongoing attempt to connect with others during a global pandemic that has us all very depressed. It's just depressing. True. So who are we connecting with today, Laura? Oh my God, such a treat we have for you. The opposite of depressing is Grace Michelle Para, who you will know from her performing credits, which include The Nightly Show with Larry Wilmore, Superstar, Master of None, White Guy Talk Show, and a small indie film I once made called Fair Goes Bang. And until very recently, Grace was writing for a CBS TV series called Broke, and she also co-hosts the podcast Hysteria. Big fan, big fan. So as you'll hear in the conversation, Grace is one of those folks that I go way back with. We went to college together, and... She's one of my favorite feminists, partially because of the way we've always interacted, which is to say that literally every time I've ever reached out to Grace and said like, hey, Grace, I've got this new project going on. Would you contribute in some way? Because you are literally brilliant and hilarious in every scenario. She has always written back and said yes, like immediately. And like, what is feminism but that? Like, I just, I really appreciate that about her. Absolutely. And I really loved getting a sense of how Hollywood is and isn't adapting and changing, not just to the you know, corona pandemic, but also to these challenges brought to its very mode of operating and its mode of storytelling. And I really thought that Grace offered a really interesting view to someone like me who has very little sense of how TV and media production actually functions, of how gender questions kind of structure and resonate in that space. Welcoming Hollywood outsider Adrian Daub to yes, the podcast. Uh, noted Hollywood nobody, Adrian Daub. <laughs> Luckily for all of us, Grace knows everything and is an incredibly versatile performer, writer, and artist, which is really the only way you get to have a career as a creative person for as long as she has had one. She also wanted to point our listeners to her work with the Workers' Defense Project, www.workersdefense.org, which aims to protect low-income workers in Texas as they battle COVID spikes and unbearable heat right now. Grace is almost as well known in politics as she is in Hollywood for her sassy and ferocious activism. You'll also meet one of her alter egos, Sassy Sally, in our interview to come. So without further ado, please enjoy noted Hollywood outsider, Professor Adrian Daub, and me, Laura Good, talking to Grace Parra. Enjoy! Thank you. 
what is the mood in Hollywood like today? It's so strange. I don't know. People are agitated and just ready to to drink, you know, really ready to do that. And it's very strange being a writer too in Hollywood when the town has kind of shut down. And by kind of, I mean like, you know, totally. I right. think I read something today that something like 98% of productions that had been slated for the second and third quarter of 2020 are just done, didn't happen, which is strange and frustrating and scary too, mostly because it's just like, we don't know when things are going to pick up again. It's been an illuminating time though, as a writer who already kind of lives in my brain to be sort of forced into the ephemeral closet of ideas again has been weird. Are you working remotely as a writer for Broke right now? So actually, this has been a fascinating time to see a show debut. And then the show was canceled, actually, the first season wrapped a couple months ago, and then was canceled all in this pandemic time. We actually wrapped right before the pandemic started. So probably February, I think mid early mid February I probably took a trip to Guatemala for a wedding and then to Tijuana which was awesome I have to tell you guys all about oh, that wow. and great then timing yeah great timing because I got in these two <laughs> these two really wonderful trips right before like literally three days before everything shut down and then in April I believe broke which is a comedy that I wrote for on CBS debuted and it was a strange experience of you know at this point we knew like okay everyone's in lockdown people are at home watching oh, wow. things what is the reception going to be like and the first week was like astronomical People were, I guess, at home and excited to watch network television for the first time since, I don't know, Seinfeld. <laughs> and it was it was kind of exhilarating experience to be watching universally with like 7 million other people. And then the ratings kind of went down as they do, I think, especially for uh, networks. We as writers had no idea what that would really mean. All we knew is like at some point networks are going to make a decision about second season pickups. And then, you know, four weeks, maybe four or five episodes had aired and they were like, yeah, bye, never mind. No season two. Thank you so much. Which was so strange to have all that experience in a very concentrated period of time. Yeah. And in fact, I think that the news about the cancellation happened the day that my episode aired, which is real weird. It's so <laughs> strange to have, yeah, to have that news happen. It feels like you died, but your body is still lingering and people are just kind of watching it and kind of poking at it and being like, oh, that's that's a funny body. Yeah, I mean, I feel like we've all gone through like lifetimes during the lockdown, <laughs> but it sounds like you've lived several at this point. Yes. Oh my God. In the midst of this too, I got engaged in October of last year. Congratulations. Thank you. Very exciting. And it's been honestly just wonderful experience all around. And we started planning our wedding right before the pandemic. It was scheduled for this September. Perfect. Oh my God. So in the midst of all this too, we're having to reschedule. And oh, wow. I'll tell you guys this one, this one story too, is our initial wedding day was scheduled for September 12th of this year, 2020. And once we realized that we wanted to reschedule and to try to push it to next fall, just to be as safe as possible, the venue that we're working with, which has been wonderful, they were like, well, we'd love to just push everybody to the corresponding week of the next year. And we were like, that sounds- Makes sense. Yeah, makes perfect sense. Except that for us, September 12th, 2020 became September 11th, oh. 2021. And not only is it 9-11, it's to be the 20th anniversary of 9-11. Oh next year wow. so we were like maybe let's not have a wedding on the 20th anniversary of uh... so when they said never forget they did not include your wedding venue they were, yeah. i laughed at all that and i want to make it very clear that i was not laughing at 9 11 no, i was course, laughing at the irony of grace's anniversary perhaps no, no. landing yes. there on laugh at 9 11 with this cancel culture <laughs> this is what I'm 
Don't cancel us. I want to be very clear where I stand. Very, very clear. What I'm laughing yes, at. Yes, yes. That's a lot. Yeah, and I also have a total respect for the dignity of that day, the survivors and, you know, the people who are first responders for that, especially, and want to remain as respectful of that day as possible, which is why it feels weird to bring a celebration into the day. But the venue was just not that concerned. Well, initially they were like, you know, it'll be fine. You'll make it your own. It's a Saturday. And we're like, all these things, but no. It's your day. (laughs) It's your day. So ultimately, though, we were able to get a date, I think, two or three weeks after that. September 25th, 2021 is the new wedding date. So, And we hadn't yet sent out invitations, too, which is great. So, Very smart. Yes, yes, yes. As long as there are no national tragedies on (laughs) September 25th, 2020, you're golden. Now I have a new form of anxiety to lull me to sleep every night. Thank you. We've all been looking for more of those, I think, these days. (laughs) Yes. I mean, that segues fairly perfectly into the general theme cluster of uh, near misses that we (laughs) endeavored to talk to you about. You segued that more perfectly than I ever could into illustrating how filled to the brim the television and film industry is with near misses. I mean, you're someone who's had a career for... How long would you say you've had a career for now? Oh my gosh. I mean, I've been lucky to make a living doing this for probably 12 years now and in varying degrees of success for sure. Some Mm -hmm. days feeling on top of the world and many, many days, more days than not, I would say feeling the weight of rejection, feeling the weight of near misses, a thing that I've been reflecting on a lot in this time period, especially because I think that something that I just wrote, which is a sort of unexpected venture for me, I just finished like two days ago, a first draft of a drama script. And I don't think that I ever could have pinned myself as a drama writer. Laura, you knew me in college. Like I was just comedy, 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 ha ha, he he. Like I thought that I'd identified very early on that comedy was a genre that I wanted to do exclusively. And I was thrilled to know that you could do that as a performer and writer. And you didn't have to feel Mm -hmm. obligated to participate in like our town. If your school wanted to do that and you're like, I don't want to do a drama that's lame Mm -hmm. and dumb. But, you know, circumstances change. And I point to a specific story that is a near miss that I think really led me down this path, which is a pilot that I had in development of like a year and a half. That was my own late night show. It's called Beyond the Wall of Grace Parra. And it was a project that was very near and dear to my heart and felt like it had been the culmination of years of me building towards a pursuit of being a late night talk show host and having my own late night show, which is something I'm still very passionate about. But it was a project that had, you know, a year and a half of producers on it and network notes and different iterations of what it would look like to ultimately find out a year and a half after the idea was pitched and sold that the network I was working with didn't have the money to pick up new shows in that arena. And it was disappointing and disheartening. And I think it's led me down a path of questioning if comedy and if late night are the only things I want to do. And while that felt like, and has, I think at times felt like a, you know, you kind of question your own identity, your own confidence when you have a singular goal. I think that it's also opened me up to the possibility that maybe I don't have to exclusively define myself by this one goal. And in fact, defining myself by an ambition takes not realizing that ambition for whatever reason to identify maybe you have more in your future and maybe there's more to you than you mm-hmm, even thought mm-hmm. you knew. 
Yeah, I feel like there's like a feminist layer or two to unpeel from what you just said, especially in terms of identifying yourself with your ambition. Mm -hmm. I mean, you and I went to college together, Mm -hmm. like you mentioned, came from this like overachiever cauldron of pressure, (laughs) where like everybody is very ambitious. Like, what have you learned in this long career about the risks and rewards associated with identifying with your ambition? I think that I felt early on that the quicker I could come to an understanding Understanding of a singular vision for myself, the better I would be. Because then it would mm-hmm. be clearly identifiable to everybody that this person, Grace Para, is about this thing. Mm-hmm. And I think that comes from a place of wanting to make myself as easily readable as possible to people, which is something I think as women, we attempt to do as frequently as possible to make ourselves mm-hmm. as accessible as possible, especially as a Latin American woman. You know, I think I was seeking a pursuit that would feel singular and also unique. So what is something that identifies me that's exclusive to the Grace Para experience and also something that's maybe unique in the spectrum of what Mexican American women tend to pursue? So I thought I had it. I was like, Grace Para, late night talk show host. There we go. That's it. Sums it all up. But I think it was limiting. I don't think that I would have understood that had I been lucky enough to see that one project come to fruition. And I also think that the downfall from what would have happened after achieving that particular goal had it come to fruition would be even more disastrous because when you limit yourself and identify in a specific way for so long, the longer that you hold yourself in that cage, the less time you have to realize all the other facets of your personality and elements of your creativity and Mm -hmm. imagination that have been, you know, there all along. Totally. Yeah. There was something about that phrase, identifying with your ambition that I both deeply relate to. Mm -hmm. And that reminded me of like men who retire after 50 years in the same career and suddenly have all the free time that they've dreamt about and like have no idea what to do with themselves. Like that to me seems like a risk associated with identifying too much with your own ambition. Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, it's interesting. You frame it in terms of self-discovery and sort of not having to play by other people's categories, not so much rules, I guess, but really by the categories of success and ambition. But I guess I was wondering about this question about the things that don't end up happening, right? Like during the whole Louis C.K. thing a couple of years ago, when what everyone already knew became more widely known, <laughs> there was this kind of discourse about like, well, imagine all the things we don't get to see from someone like Louis now, right? And then people would always make the point back saying, well, think of all the things we didn't get to see because of his shitty and toxic behavior. How does one sort of square that? So on the one hand, you see that some of these near misses have allowed you to sort of flex muscles you didn't know you had, help you expand your sense of yourself, and that's great. At the same time, they're clearly also often indicative of inequities in the system that you're operating in. How do you balance these two things? Like, How do you stay grateful for the things that maybe shouldn't have come to pass and mad about the structures that maybe made it impossible or made it harder than it should have been. I mean, I'll be honest, it is difficult. I had this conversation with my fiance last night where I was like thinking about this particular experience. I still struggle with it on a daily basis to wonder what went wrong and to wonder what it says about me. I think the difficult thing is Mm. pivoting away from thinking that it's my fault to understanding that there are so many systems in place that have nothing to do with me. That's difficult. I think that there's a level of humility that that one has to be able to put into play to understand that it's not just 
you that everybody is against you and that everybody hates you as an individual, you don't have what it takes, which is really tough for me. Most of us, I think, are selfish beings who think like the world revolves around us, you know, and if something goes wrong, it's because of something that we did. When in fact, I don't think that that's the case, but it is very hard to see to greater structures in place that we have no control over. So I think that the struggle is in not losing hope and not feeling like it's an indictment on one's own skill and talent, which is really difficult and something that I've definitely done. I mean, I've definitely in subsequent months and years, I'm like, well, I just don't have it. That's it. The boat's sailed that, you know, it's never going to happen for me. Yeah, I'll be honest. It's something that I struggle with on a daily basis and something I feel like is helped by pushing forward, you know, putting one foot in front of the other, talking it out and understanding that this is a thing I'm going through and not feeling like I have to put a veneer of everything's great. And here's the silver lining. Of course, of course, there's silver linings. And I think, Adrian, to your use of the word gratitude there is like dead on. I mean, how can we bring gratitude into our failures as much as to our successes is something mm. I'm like dying to try to figure out. You know, also at the end of the day, you have to earn a paycheck too. You have to earn a living. That's one of the most difficult parts of this is that it's like with a, an experience like I went through with that pilot there's such a binary between like, here is not only the dream that you've had in mind your whole life, but also like, you know, a door opening to wealth that you've never experienced before and exposure that you've never experienced before. And when that door doesn't open and, you know, leaves all the other doors behind that door closed, the hallway of fun, um, (laughs) you do question like, will I ever get the other things that were in those doors down that hallway subsequently if this one thing doesn't happen? But I'll tell you this, had I not been producing in the middle of developing that project, I would not have gone to the post Emmys party where I met my now fiance, soon to be husband. And I look back at that and I think I wouldn't give that up for anything. I would not have a million pilots produced to make that meeting happen because it has changed my life in ways that I never knew I needed. And again, when one identifies exclusively by their ambition, you don't also think, or rather, I thought for a long time, like, well, because I'm identifying with my ambition, I'm only going to be about my career. Right. And the idea of finding somebody that I might want to spend the rest of my life with is never going to happen for me. And yet it did. And so it's been an unexpected couple of years for sure with things that I did not know I would find, but gifts mm. that I would never mm. exchange for anything in the world. Yeah, there's so much in what you just said, because what you just described, I'm having a really hard time removing the patina of knowing you for my interpretation here, because everything you just said testifies so strongly to your resilience, to your multi-talentedness, to your adaptability, to your graciousness. And I think that those are important things to underscore for people who might be listening to this, who aren't as far along in their careers. You know, like I think just as Adrian was highlighting this sort of duality, it is shitty for people who belong to underrepresented categories in entertainment, either in terms of race or gender or both. It's shitty for those people to have to be more adaptable and you benefit as a person from being more adaptable. It's like one of those weird both and propositions. It's truly a double-edged sword in the way that you're describing it, it sounds like. Yeah. I mean, and like I said, adaptability is something I just never knew was a skill I needed or never viewed it as a virtue because when you have a clear understanding of who you think you are at 22 and you pursue it and, and for that ambition to be rewarded and to be acknowledged as very in keeping with your skill sets and very in keeping with your personality. It does feel strange to introduce the idea of adaptability, but the older that I get, the more I understand that being in pursuit of adaptability is not only, I think, an individual goal, but clearly something we're experiencing as a country right now. And one that I hope we're just going through so many growing pains right now, because I don't think we've seen adaptability Mm -hmm. as an important virtue on either the micro individual level or the greater communal level. 
Totally. I mean, I think adaptability is a skill, like you said, it's both essential if you're going to have any kind of long-term creative career. And it's like one of those like human qualities that tends to expose you to greater like potential for happiness too. (laughs) A lot of Americans do tend to forget that. Yeah. You know, I've never worked in Hollywood, never paid that much attention. But one of the things that I, as a consumer of a lot of pop culture, kind of have noticed is precisely that it seems like actually from what it looks like from the outside, what it's like to create or be part of these endeavors, the amount of adapting you actually have to do seems to have gone down, right? I mean, like, it's true, Broke is a pretty traditional sitcom, but you've done some other things that really, you know, 20 years ago, this never would have made it to a consumer, and now it does, right? Really interesting, really kind of unique projects. Yeah. What kind of pressure does that put on adaptability? Because on the one hand, of course, like, it's a business and you have to play by the rules, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, it does seem like we're kind of like more so than 20, 30 years ago or more than even 10 years ago, refusing to adapt at a certain moment, be like, no, this is a story I'm going to tell and you're all going to either watch or not watch. It's sort of the name of the game. How do you square that? Like, how do you decide like when the moment comes to just kind of sort of say, nope, just one way here and, you know, that's it. This is such an interesting question because I've been thinking a lot about the fact that one of the ways in which television has become less adaptable is in the number of episodes that are ordered for every TV season. So it Ah. used to be 22, 24 episodes per season of television was normal. Now, you know, you'll watch an animated show on Netflix that has six episodes or eight episodes. And that's been a conversation in the Writers Guild frequently because with payment, like you just get less if you're only writing for eight episodes than you do if you're writing for 22. So the notion of being able to adapt on the level of like writing for eight episodes of one show and then pivoting to the next and writing eight episodes of that and then, you know, doing that for three or four different shows over the course of a year. Whereas in the past, in the era of multicams like Seinfeld and Frasier and Friends being super, super successful, peak like late 90s television, you would be on a show as a writer for 24, you know, episodes. And that would be your sole job. Just that one thing, that's it. You get a nice summer break or whatever in between seasons and that's it. So yes, to the point about there needing to be an adaptability as a writer when you're staffed on other people's shows and other people's visions. Simultaneously, the goal is that you're constantly developing your own projects, even while you're writing in other people's work. It forces you to feel like, honestly, writing is just one of those professions where you have homework every single night. Like either you go home and you're writing for the show that you're working on and you, you have to come up with ideas in preparation for the next day, or you should be working on something that you can sell as soon as that show is done. Mm -hmm. And it's maddening, really. It doesn't allow frequently, I think, for focus on just one project, which as somebody who writes and also performs, it's difficult to feel like you can pursue multiple projects as a creator and then also have a life outside of that. So that's one of the kind of benefits of this social distancing period has been like, you know, time to just take a breath and focus only on the projects that I want to create. And then also on my, you know, personal life, my home life. And it is in those moments that I realized like, hey, the thing that I want to be writing right now isn't network comedy jokes. It's actually like a drama. And there's something very mm-hmm. freeing about being able to fly through the creation of dramatic pages. And like, again, this is the first experience for me to not have to end every scene. Right with a joke. And it's so different. And a thing that I might not have found had I not been in quarantine, but to the point of adaptability, something that I'm so thrilled that I've had the opportunity to now kind of learn Mm -hmm. about myself. So this new model where essentially you're always helping others and 
also sort of pitching and putting forward your own projects. Has the gender politics around that changed? Right. I mean, like, how is this gendered? I guess is, is the way I, as, yeah. a, as a professor would ask the question, right? Oh, that's a great question. I have found that initially projects that I was creating, I would give ideas to agents, managers, and they would suggest that I be paired up with an older showrunner of some kind. And I think I've almost exclusively in a writing world been paired up with female writers who are kind of higher up the food chain, which has been a oh. really positive experience. Even with like upper level male writers that I've written with on projects that I've created, I've only had positive experiences. So I would say that part of my experience, I think, has been just with age. Inevitably, you want to make sure that younger writers and younger creators are armed with experience to be able to get projects seen fully through. But yeah, there's always a male lurking. I feel like there's always, in order for a project to feel like it's packaged in, in a way that can be actually you know, brought to fruition on screen, networks just need to feel like there's a guy somewhere. It doesn't have to be the guy as a creator. It doesn't have to be a male on camera, but there has to be a producer of some kind somewhere in the package. And I have found that frustrating that I also have not felt like I've ever been in a situation where I've been able to attach female Latina directors, Latina talent on camera, Latina writers to networks that have a strong Latina presence because these things just don't exist. So to me, it feels like the next level level of creation is how do I involve a number of people from my own demographic, women from my own demographic in various arenas, because one is just not enough. There's just so few Latinas on television. It's crazy. And I can't believe that we have one female late night talk show host, Samantha B. That's it. How is that possible? Not to mention that there are no women of color in that particular field. It's been something that's been just infuriating me. And it's kind of turned me off from the field of late night. Not that I don't respect so many. I worship Stephen Colbert. And I think Conan is like, to me, one of the most comedic geniuses of our time, who I think has like set the standard for hosts in late night. But it is shocking to me that we still haven't gotten it together enough to have women of color in that field. Okay, so I want to pick up a little bit with what you were talking about, both in terms of industry requirements to have a man in the room and, you know, Mm -hmm. as few women of color as possible. They don't write that out in the rules, but that seems pretty clearly delivered in uh, the way mandates are enacted. Mm -hmm. Who are some of the folks who you have looked to as allies and mentors, the people that you mentioned as having been a few steps higher on the food chain? Like, I know Larry Wilmore, for example, is someone who is really important to your career. Who are the folks who have been important in that way. Yeah, Larry Wilmore is an example of somebody who I just, I mean, I was a huge fan of his before I got a chance to work with him on The Nightly Show and then working with him only affirmed his intelligence and his grace and his character. He's incredible. There's a lot of people that I've worked with from afar who I love the shit out of. The people that I've had a chance to work with, there's a showrunner named RJ Freed, who is white guy, who was a showrunner of the pilot that I worked on that I just mentioned, and is now the showrunner for our cartoon president. And he is just so smart and was one of those guys who walked in and like had a resume when we met and was like just so showed that he wanted it and wasn't afraid to. And I feel like a lot of men want to be cool about it, you know, and don't want to show that they earnestness. really... Yes. Earnestness can be a liability. Yes. yes. Oh. Yeah. Interesting. Wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Everyone has to back this up. I yes. don't actually understand this. Oh. Explain this to me. Earnestness? <laughs> yeah. How, how does that work? What's the, 
What's the economy of earnestness in Hollywood? Oh, I feel oh, like you okay. both know oh. this. I do not know this. <laughs> yes, no, that's a great question. So I think when you have a project, like the project that I'm talking about that got picked up to pilot means that I was able to put a show into development for the first episode to use it as kind of a litmus test to see if it's going to go to series. So once you get the green light for that, you hire a staff of people. You have writers and you have a crew and you've got producers, etc. And the most important person kind of at the top of the totem pole is the showrunner. So the showrunner works directly with you as a creator and a writer and a host to create your vision. So it's a really important job. It's an incredibly important dynamic to have between these two people. And most of the time with people that I met for positions, that pilot and beyond, showrunners tend to have an attitude of, I've done everything under the sun that you've loved. And you can just look at my IMDb and see why you need me for this project. Versus coming in and being like, here's my resume with all the things that I've done. And Uh. here's like an essay on why I want to do this. And here's a binder of ideas that I've got before we even go to this meeting so that you know how aware I am, which I think these are things that as women, I've never not shown up with these things. And I'm like a little eager beaver like that, a little, you know, I don't know, sassy Sally. I made that up. I don't know who sassy Sally is, but somebody who (laughs) feels, Laura's nodding like, yep, that's the greatest part I know. I know sassy Sally. Yeah, I know her. Yeah. She's a listener. Long-time listener. We're we're Facebook friends. Long-time listener, first-time caller. Friend of the podcast, Sassy Friend of the pod, friend of the pod. And this is something that I have found infrequently in men, especially in men who have achieved success in Hollywood, but have found it in people and find that that is the kind of individual that doesn't need to be told to, you know, express like a real desire and earnestness for a job, but just does it of his own willingness. I'll tell you somebody else who has been really beneficial for me. Jennifer Lopez is a producer who I worked with. My very first pilot that I sold to MTV is a project. Yeah, she produced. And from that, she and her production company invited me to be a host of a show on the Fuse Network, which is, I think, Sullivan Systems, which is the job that led me to my job on The Nightly Show. She, who I only met a handful of times, but is the most strikingly beautiful, talented, incredible person I've ever met, is somebody who just from afar showed so much support. And I will never forget that because, you know, somebody like Jennifer Lopez probably doesn't need to meet with first-time writers who are producing projects for MTV, the home of Beavis and Butthead, and yet did. But she's also someone who might give a fuck about having a room with more Latinas in it that she gets to work in, especially because at the point that you met her, she had already been working in all white rooms for 20 years. You know, like, I don't have trouble seeing why she took that meeting with you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think another thing I want to talk about, and I'll throw myself under the bus with this first, I want to talk about jealousy, because I think that's something that gets swept under the rug a lot in talking about creative careers and how to sustain them in the long term. So to begin this conversation, Grace Parra, would you mind rolling (laughs) off a little laundry list of some of the famous people that we went to college with? Oh, my goodness. Okay, well, there's former Varsity Show star Kate McKinnon, Greta Gerwig, Ezra Koenig, Laura Good. I'm going to pay you double Uh, than what we agreed upon for... Also a long-time listener of the show. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) Along with Sassy Sally. Uh, you know, Mira Menon, director, and Rommel Muhammad, who's a writer, who I adore, Kelly McCreary, Michelle Collins, comedian, Jenny Slate, yeah. Gabe Liedman. I mean, there are so many. There are so many. It is, it is. Anna Bulbrook. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of nuts. It's kind of nuts, right? kind of nuts. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, so like, wow, so many things to say. <laughs> so yes to everyone you just said. I would say if you and I were having drinks, I could name another f- 20 to 40 people who 
I thought were equally talented in college who like people probably haven't heard. Yes. Right. Yes. I remember having lots of feelings in college where we got to this university where they blew a whole lot of sunshine up our ass about like how amazing we were. I remember having feelings watching like people like you and people like Greta in things like the varsity show and being like, I think these people might be talented by like any metric. Like I don't think these people are just like student production talented. And so, so I guess one positive way that I've chosen to spend some of this jealousy for myself is just like complimenting myself on my own good taste. Like, oh yeah, Grace Parra, I was totally right about her. But like in the long term, what sort of coping mechanisms have you found with jealousy? How do you do this? I mean, you know, self hatred. Yeah, that's a big part of it. Drinking, yeah, I think, drinking. is also pretty effective. Drinking, drinking. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <sighs> you know, jealousy is something that I felt as a young girl who grew up with three big brothers. I didn't feel it frequently because I was always like the little girl, little cute little girl in the family that was like, you know, significantly younger than my brothers and the only lady and like just very confident and self-assured. What knocked a lot of that out of me was going to an all-girl high school, even before Columbia, because mm. the roles that mm-hmm. one sees in co-ed schools, all those archetypes are filled in an overall high school. I think you see more sides of ambition, if you will. You see more sides of success than you might in a co-ed school where boys kind of are dominant, where boys are the jocks, where boys are the class clowns, where boys are the class presidents. You see women doing all those things. And so while you might enter into a situation feeling like you can be all things to everybody, when you are in a dynamic where you see other young girls being better at you in certain ways, you sort of recalibrate and understand like, okay, you're going to have lanes, but you're not going to be the best at every single thing. So it kind of, I think, curtails some of that jealousy. I agree with you completely that jealousy is just so frequently swept under the rug and we don't talk about it because it's it's kind of shameful. And I do believe that. Especially for women. Yes, you know, yes. Like I feel like it's seen as somehow anti-feminist to feel yeah. jealousy when in fact, I think it's more anti-feminist to falsely avoid competition or conflict. You yes, know what I'm saying? yes, yeah. But go on, I interrupted you. Uh, no, no, but I agree with that completely. And, and I also will say, that like, I think I experienced, despite all that, and despite feeling like I did reach a point in high school where I had recalibrated some of the jealousy, I thought I was raised well by my parents and I love my parents deeply, but I do think that my mom gave me a sense of like, you're better than, you're better than everybody. You're wonderful, mijita. <laughs> mijita, they don't have what you have, mijita, trust me. And Shout out Mary Parra. Shout out Mary Parra. <laughs> and, uh, and I love her for that, but I do think that I've been working against that for a lot of my adult life. Now, yeah. the tricky thing is still feeling a sense of confidence Mm. despite seeing other people succeed and knowing that your voice is still worthwhile even when you have had that close call that didn't happen and when other people get those things that you wanted so badly or something even adjacent to it. That's been, I will say, a big trick too in curtailing jealousy is not conflating somebody else's dream with your own. I mean, it's really difficult. I'll be completely honest here. Let's get fucking real. If I had at this point seen Mm. another Mexican-American woman from Texas who's in her early to mid-30s getting her own late-night talk show, I would feel like, okay, that's uh, I have total reason to be jealous of that specific thing. But when friends do things that are adjacent in the world of comedy but aren't the exact thing that I want, I have to remind myself, Grace, that's not what you were going after. That was not the, the sole thing that you were in pursuit of. So I think, though, again, that takes recalibration understanding that whatever your lane is, is different from other people's is part of the process of of healing that. And also I think a big thing that my mom didn't do to me, which I think came from not having sisters, but was, 
I think by the time I got to my all-girl high school, something that I sought and hopefully did better at was collaboration. Like the people that you feel jealous of or envious of, rather than pushing them away, rather than, you know, being like, oh, I can't be around them because they distract me or whatever. Reach out to work with them, to collaborate yeah, with put them. Put them on your podcast. Put them on your podcast. <laughs> be on their podcast, Laura Good. Yeah. Yes. Boom. Boom. No, I, I couldn't have said it better myself. I think for myself, the three most effective jealousy coping mechanisms I've found have been number one, collaboration, not competition. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like don't be jealous, be impressed yes. and like try to get them on your team. Number two, remembering that in our internet era, even things that have the splashiest release are never going to be in the public dialogue yeah. like more than a month. Yes. So even if you are truly like eating your heart out suffering, you're not going to probably have to live there for more than 30 days. And also you put this a different way, but what I think of it as is just like not making ambition a zero sum game. You know, like if you get something wonderful, that isn't something that's been taken away from me. And I think in our like hyper-capitalistic competition culture, that's a message (laughs) that gets really, really missed a lot of the time. Yes. Yeah, constantly. I mean, this may be a really stupid question, but it does just from the names that you mentioned, many of whom I recognize, it sounds like the target of jealousy is usually other women, right? Which is not kind of, it kind of makes sense, right? Given the lanes that you're describing, given the sort of structural inequities that we're dealing with. Mm-hmm. At the same time, mm-hmm. you know, it is kind of interesting in that it sort of retargets something that like people in your lane who take up something that you could potentially do are probably smaller number than the mediocre white dudes who do way way less for way more money. But it seems like they're sort of out of sight when it comes to jealousy. Partly because they're mediocre, right? Who's... It was jealous of mediocre people, but it, but it's kind of interesting, right? You know, it stems, I think, from a feeling of tokenism that there can mm. only be one woman who can do this one thing. There can only be one woman of color who can do this thing. There can only be one Latina who can do this thing. So rather than feel collaborative, like I'm sure Stephen Colbert and James Corden and Jon Stewart all feel together because right. they're not really in competition with each other, except maybe at Emmy season, they don't have the pressure of jealousy because... They don't have to. But with women, because we're sort of taught to feel, especially in this industry, that if somebody's going to make it, it's going to be one person. So you better hope to be that one person and you better, in effect, hope to beat out everybody else who's in that category. We are taught to fear a lack of opportunity from an early stage in this career. I mean, I realize this is an incredibly naive sounding question. It's just like the number of shows that have a far more diverse cast, clearly far more diverse mm-hmm. creators, et cetera, et cetera, has clearly mm-hmm. exploded with the streaming wars and everything. Has mm-hmm. that changed anything or is it still the exact same way or is it still functionally pretty similar? I think that it is shifting and I can feel it shifting, but it's not shifting as quickly as people might think. I mean, I'll right. say from an actor's perspective, I can't tell you how many times I go into auditions where it is always for supporting, you know, best friend role and the role is scripted for ethnic Right. So it's not specific to the experience of a Mexican-American woman or Guatemalan woman or even a Latin woman, you know, just uh, could be an African-American woman, could be an Asian woman. As long as you're not white, you could be up for this role. So there is an attempt to create opportunities for women of color, for sure. But it is so nonspecific that it just still feels like virtue signaling. You know, it feels like, hey, everybody, we're Mm. making a big show of casting one person who is not going to be white. How great is that? And yay, let's applaud. The person who gives Gwyneth Paltrow a towel. Yes, yes, yes. Oh my God. (laughs) I mean, I will tell you that not this past pilot season, this past pilot season three months ago blew up in the middle of the pandemic. So it was barely underway really for me to get an idea of what it was like. But this pilot season before that, I was up for like four roles, seriously, I think. 
two or three of which were Latin American maids with accents. Oh, wow. Like in comedies. I mean, this is real. Like, I don't think yeah. this pilot's even made it to series. But yeah. So I just let that out as a warning that things are not changing as dramatically as you think. And also because the way that right, right. certain media outlets like to frame the big splashy press release that you mentioned, Laura, like in the entertainment industry, there's a big push to and anytime you cast somebody that's an actor of color, anytime you pick up a script or development that's from a creator of color, networks and studios and streamers love to make sure that there is a big like, you know, yes, look at us. We're so inclusive. But I'm dying to see what the follow through is on that. Right. To have a show like Insecure, to have a show like Michaela Cole's brilliant right. new show on HBO, I May Destroy You, actually go to series. Right. I mean, it takes a much bigger commitment. And there are so many more people who have the opportunity to sell those shows, but don't actually see them come to fruition than you often think about. So it's a slow moving train. I'm hoping that things will change a little bit after, you know, the unrest of the last few months, but I don't know, man. Yeah. It's interesting. They'll put out a big splashy press release when they hire four actors of color and then not so much of the yep. big splashy press release when they cancel that show after two episodes, you know? <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's, exactly. That's exactly. the messaging problem. Yeah. Or on Netflix after just running its regular course, which as you're pointing out, you're not getting paid that much for anyway, right? If it's a six episode season and there's no second season yeah. for a viewer like myself, I might think, Hey, wow, that, that story got neatly wrapped up, but what it is is someone didn't get to keep their job, right? Exactly, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I'm trying to think of how to frame this as a question, and I may or may not succeed, but as we're talking about who does and doesn't have jobs and the price of near misses, we touched on this briefly talking about Louis C.K., but another thing that I think about a lot is not just the opportunity cost of the people who were sexually harassed out of ever getting a meeting that might have led them to a TV show, but also the person who gets their first acting job in a small role on like a Louis C.K. type show that gets canceled. You know what I'm saying? Like the collateral damage mm-hmm. of problematic people being taken off the roster. Is that something you've observed or experienced? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, first of all, I think that there's a perception that when you get that one opportunity that you're sort of set for life. Exactly. Yes. Myth number one of creative careers to dispel. Yes. 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 I mean, and I think there are people who probably are like, oh, Grace is on the nightly show. She's fine. And it's like, no idea what has happened <laughs> since then and the near misses and like the journey mm-hmm. that I've been on. And this isn't, I am not somebody who uses social media frequently to like, you know, talk about these journeys. I don't know yet what medium these journeys are going to take in terms of sharing them, whether on a fictional level or, you know, memoir 20 years down the road, who knows? I have no idea, but stories I'm collecting for sure. But uh, yeah, it is harder to know those people's stories when they get that first opportunity and then the opportunity is taken away for whatever reason when people aren't sharing them. So while I do encourage people to share those journeys, I also know from my perspective that, you know what, sometimes you just want to live it privately and you just, you don't want to have to live your life on social media to get jobs. I think that's been, that's a a really kind of fucked up thing too, that I've been contending with as somebody who, by the way, in a couple of these earlier jobs that I've mentioned, it's written in your contract that you have to promote whatever show it is a certain number of times a day or a week on social media as part of a deal. So it's, you're sort of like contractually obligated to talk about it in social media. That's fascinating because I was thinking about this the other day. It says less to do with gender, even though I guess it has to do with a certain kind of white feminism. The fact that Tina Fey removed Live from Studio 6H oh. from a bunch of streaming services because of Flackface gets. Right. I remember that specific episode, right? The Live from Studio 6H. 
has Donald Glover in it really early in his career, right? Like in visible proximity to the blackface skit. And I'm just like, it had such a kind of alibi function and so visibly an alibi function. It really, I mean, I remember even at the time kind of finding it sick that like this comedian artist that all we know about him, right, would suggest that he would look at that and be like, oh, please don't do this. (laughs) Which is ultimately what the skit in question was about. But still, he sort of functioned as a little bit of an alibi. And I have wondered about this, about like all these shows that actors and actresses and writers have to sort of promote and their identity sort of comes to vouch for them when, in fact, they may have serious problems with the way these shows actually shaking out. And I mean, again, that's a total outside perception. Is that accurate? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, abs- absolutely. Especially as like when you are the Donald Glover in the situation where he was, I believe, the token person of color writer on the show. And I know there were a few performers who had very supporting roles in the show who were of color. But yeah, you're essentially called upon to represent the show. And so it makes the show look good to have a couple of you in there because it's like, here's a Latina. So it's all good. You know, it's fine. She's vetted everything. When it's like, this is not my vision. You know, it's a different situation when your name is on the show as creator. Right. And then truly you do have to answer to the decisions that are being made. But yeah, when you're anything below creator on the show, you are are called upon to represent it and sometimes you just don't support it i mean i wrote for a show it's a terrible show uh <laughs> the premise was these uh two guys can't get jobs as men so they dress up like women i remember to, this uh, yeah 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 it was a fabled fabled time yeah. and like that was a show that aired like two times and i think it was like before i had social media so i was under no obligation to promote it but i look back and i'm like oh my god i couldn't stand behind that i mean yeah I, even at the time i was just like this feels very strange yeah. to be in this setting and you know looking back it's like it made perfect sense like it was one of the worst experiences because a lot of the people in this room didn't have a lot of particular sensitivities mm. and we're not you're kidding <laughs> yeah i know shocking <laughs> shocking the premise was right that they can't get jobs because of too many diversity quotas and therefore yeah oh yeah that, i remember seeing the trailer for that and being like how this feels like a this feels like a bit yeah this yeah feels, yeah <laughs> like as a as yeah, an snl skit that good. would be funny sure maybe <laughs> yeah well, and going back to the donald glover example I think I'm correct in remembering that he was an NBC page at that time, as you were once upon a time. And so he was not being paid by 30 Rock, right? He was essentially being loaned out to 30 Rock for free as an NBC intern. So not only was he being held up as a token, he was not being paid by the engine that was holding him up as a token. I can confirm that often when writers of color are brought on at an entry level, staff writer level, like I believe Donald probably was his first season at 30 Rock, which I have been uh, two or three times now. Those diversity slots, as they're called, are paid for by the network, not the show. Yeah. So to have a diverse writer does not come out of the budget of the TV show. Oh, wow. The network pays. The network is like, we want so badly to make it clear that we hire people of color that we are not even going to put it on your budget to find somebody because we don't even trust that you'll find somebody that you'll really like. So we'll just shoulder the budget and they they will pay for it. And it's a practice that I think has, again, this is a conversation much like the conversation about how to compensate writers who only work for eight episodes versus, you know, 22 is a big thing in the Writers Guild. Another issue is what is happening with these diversity slots, because it's very easy, first of all, to hire somebody and essentially virtue signal that you've got somebody in the room that's of color and then never work to promote them. And they can repeat that position of staff writer, you know, three, four or five times and then not work unless they are a diverse 
writer, you know, paid for by the network. And also it's just so ambiguous. What is diversity now? I mean, I think that title in general is something that's like, it's like the same feeling that I have going into an audition and knowing that the role that I'm reading for is scripted for a quote unquote open ethnicity. Right. It's the same thing when you have a diverse writer. It's like, what, is, what does that mean? Now? You cannot apply the term diverse to an individual. You can't. You can't. You can't. Level. No. And you know what that breeds? To bring this back full circle, it breeds the feeling of a system that supports tokenism. So you feel like there is one spot right. and now it's you against all the other brown people and you better hope that you're that one person that gets right. that spot because if you don't, oh then there aren't going to be other opportunities. I have no idea how a writer's room operates, I have to admit. As you describe any, all these crafts, I'm like, oh, wait, it's like any Aaron Sorkin show. <laughs> like he could, Aaron Sorkin looks at any yeah. fucking yeah. workplace. Literally. Like, it's yes. kind of like, like any room. Aaron like, Sorkin. Is it though? They're firefighters, dude. But anyway. No, an Aaron Sorkin writer's room is Aaron Sorkin in one room and then a whole bunch of people getting paid to cry and never see their work on screen. Yes, in another yes, room. yes, yes. That's, that's an accurate. Aaron Sorkin writer's room. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. What I was thinking about, too, is like, you know, I, I don't know what the experience obviously is like. It could be, you know, you could get into that writer's room by whatever mechanism and it could be a really gratifying experience. But doesn't that sort of suggest that the function of that writer is mostly to sort of check other people's impulses sort of like to act as a like oh we probably shouldn't go sensitivity there sensitivity reader yeah. yeah right exactly like kind of like a sensitivity reader in publishing as opposed to someone who can generate a story and someone else in the writer's room says yeah that sounds great what if we do it yeah. this way right does that actually shake out that way or can people make that space sort of their own I think that you nailed it I think that it does then become the onus of that diversity writer to fill that role and let's say you're writing on a comedy if you're the person that people are looking to just to check and make sure that what they've pitched is appropriate and not lacking in sensitivity, then where's the space for you to concurrently pitch jokes and concurrently, right. you know, pitch story ideas and characters, you end up shouldering a responsibility that nobody else in the room has to, which can in turn affect your ability to contribute the way the other writers are brought in to contribute. So it's distracting right. in some ways, you know, and I will say on the flip side of the kind of negative experience that I mentioned, there are also wonderful experiences like Broke, where I was one of three right. Latino writers, two male, and then I was like the lady Latina writer. And that's the first time that there have ever been more than, I'm sorry, four of us. There were four of us, oh. which is fantastic out of, I think, 10. And the cast also, three out of the main five cast members were Latino too. And that was awesome. And it was wonderful because not one person had to sit back and be that sensitivity writer for the whole yeah. staff. We had scenes that were bilingual scenes written in both English and Spanish. And in times, you know, I've definitely written on shows where there would be an occasional need for a pop of Spanish that would, you know, inevitably people would look at me and be like, well, you're going to do that, right, Grace? And I would do it, of course, no problem. But it was nice that in this situation, I could do it with other people who also spoke Spanish and that we could even check each other and create the best iteration of a Spanish translation that, especially when you're dealing with jokes, like jokes going from English to Spanish, there's so many different nuances and colloquialisms that you really need multiple people to make sure that you capture the essence of what the joke is. I cannot imagine shouldering that exclusively and having to do that alone. And so I'm grateful that we've gotten to a point where we realize that having this one person of color staff writer in a room does very little. I mean, especially for the writer, you know, for whom it can be a great opportunity, but frequently doesn't necessarily lead to a long-term career. It's just more, you know, seen as one-off. It makes a really kind of interesting assumption about what the audience is like, doesn't it? Yes. If you have that one writer, it's about 
oh, a very tiny minority of our viewers are going to be X, and therefore we shouldn't offend them actively, but we don't have to tell stories that they find interesting or yeah. that they get excited <laughs> about or jokes that ring true to them. Or right? that are um, authentic. Exactly. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. And I think the same is true, frankly, for 30 Rock, right? Like, it was a racially aware comedy made for and by white people, right? Like, you could really kind of tell that, like, diversity was included yeah. and acknowledged in a way that still centered whiteness in this really interesting way. I mean, it's interesting to see that a show that doesn't really centered this so much like broke still able to sort of just acknowledge that like yeah the the demographics of the country are shifting and yeah maybe it's time to tell people stories you know yeah exactly and that's why you know it, it's always a disappointment to see shows go especially ones where you had a positive experience but i do feel delighted by the fact that cbs was like hey let's show scenes that are entirely in spanish on primetime mm. television for an american audience and put subtitles underneath and then let them fucking read it right Deal with it. Yeah. Yes, exactly. We have tens of millions of Latin Americans in this country who will probably watch that and be like, yo, that's dope. I know what that is. I, I identify with that. And we're not making it dumber for Spanish-speaking audiences. We are playing to the top of people's intelligence as best as we can. Yeah, there's just an acknowledgement that there's an audience out there that is more ready for those kinds of things. I love the fact that CBS wasn't afraid of that. Yeah. But, you know, the next goal, of course, is like, let's get a show on air that's going to do that season after Six season. seasons in a movie. Six seasons in a that's movie. That's the goal. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Grace, last question. We're going to make it a hard hitter. <laughs> oh, I love it. If you could retroactively, well, past or present, if you could either retroactively or currently cast yourself as either an actor or a writer in any TV show, but I'm particularly thinking of like prestige anti-hero dramas, just a, just a suggestion. <laughs> Where would you place yourself? Okay, as a writer or an actor? Your choice. Oof. Um, Okay. So something that I truly, oh, I know what it would be. I know what it'll be because last night I just finished watching the fifth and final season of The Wire. And I for the would, first time? For the first time. And I would cast myself as a writer on that show because it is so clear. They just didn't have, in the, I don't know if they had female writers. I hope that they did. I assume they had at least a few. I don't think that they had enough female perspective to make sure that the female characters of that show were given the just due that they deserved. I can't tell you how many female characters were introduced. Kima, Alma in the fifth season, Beatty, as these characters, you're like, oh shit, this woman's going to kick Snoop. ass. Snoop. Snoop, I love. Snoop, I fucking love. Yeah. And then their yeah. stories inevitably fall by the wayside so McNulty can fuck some random woman he met at a bar so mcnulty's body count can exactly go yes. exactly and it was yeah. so infuriating to me and i was watching it for the first time with my fiance he was watching it for the second time and he had seen it i think like 10 years ago whenever it first came out and it was a totally different experience for him as a straight white man because he was like these things didn't even bother me but now they do i didn't even realize at the time that the representation of women on this show is so bad but like i would go back and be a female voice on that show because i think it would have enhanced it i mean it's it's an incredible show. And that fourth season especially is one of the best shows of television ever. But no question, that's the show for me. Well, David Simon, sure you're listening. I'm positive you're listening. Oh, so yeah. uh, <laughs> you can get Grace's number Let's from us. Let's make it happen. Long-time listeners. Yes. <laughs> Friend of the pod, David Simon. <laughs> I love how we have so many long-time listeners after five episodes. So. I know. Well, Jane it's Sassy Fonda. Sally. It's it's her, it's her follower count. There's you know? no she stopping just... Sassy Sally. <laughs> The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dobb and Laura Good. It's produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalfas. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. 
We're eternally grateful for funding support from the Institute Named for a Woman in a Building Named for a Woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we're especially grateful to our feminist colleagues Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl Crossley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is Arlenier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following products, services, and entities. Blue Apron, Hymns, Casper Mattresses, and That Stupid Wine Club started by two MIT grads. Follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We're Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and write us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. We'd appreciate it so much if instead you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there.